just learning how to be with and embody and inhabit our bodies. And 
And I'm noticing people are a little bit lighter, a little bit softer, a little bit more flexible. It doesn't look like we've got robots doing walking meditation. (laughs) There's a little bit of flow, a little bit of softness, a little bit of fluidity. And actually, you know, it, it does the human thing a little bit more than the robotic thing. So that, to me, is a good sign. The second foundation of mindfulness, which I haven't worked with so much on this retreat, is is the the foundation of mindfulness of working with feelings. Now, this feeling is not the feeling of our normal sense of emotion feeling. This is a Buddhist language, the word feeling, and it has to do with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And so, you know, a huge, big thing can happen, and it's pleasant. Or another huge thing can happen, and it's unpleasant. Or we can get totally spaced out and distracted because it's neutral. So big stories or, or, or movements of mind can be reduced down to something simple, often, like pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And when we begin to use that as what's happening in our practice then we can take stuff that normally is enormously activating and just focus on the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of it. And it gives us a huge amount of traction, whereas before we were completely off balance with it, you know, lost in it, just completely side sidelined by it. So the first foundation of mindfulness gives us the capacity to work with the body in the many different ways that we can. And the second foundation of mindfulness gives us the capacity to work with feeling. The third foundation of mindfulness, which I alluded to today in a few different ways, is the ability to watch thought just as thought. Just see thought as thought. Uh, An exalted mind is exalted. A contracted mind is contracted. A distracted mind as distracted. A mind full of love and kindness is a mind full of love and kindness. A mind full of ill will is a mind full of ill will. And one of the things that I love I just love about the instructions on the third foundation of mindfulness is there's no judgment. You're not a good meditation practitioner if your mind is exalted, and you're not a schleppy meditation practitioner if your mind is distracted. What is needed is to know a mind that's exalted as exalted and a mind that's distracted as distracted. There's no preferencing the mind states from the perspective of knowing them for what they are. That's like, wow, that's total freedom. It means that we don't have to be at war with ourselves and create a pile of all the ones that we think are good and wholesome and stack them up and collect them and gather them and build them and push away all the ones that we don't like, that are nasty, that are not in accordance with our view of who we are or what our spiritual practice is about. We don't have to do that. We just need to know them for what they are. It's distracted, it's exalted, it's contracted, it's full of metta, it's full of rage, it's full of resentment. It's just this right now. It doesn't posit a me having an it. It just says, know it, know it, just know it. So I love that. I love that. I think that's fabulous. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness then takes the knowing it and then works it so that it brings it more back into balance. So if we're dealing with rage or we're dealing with lust or we're dealing with 
the kinds of things in our mind which we often call hindrances, they hinder our capacity to rest in our own natural state of awareness. They hinder our capacity to be concentrated and calm. Then to work with them in a way that allow them to release. So the third foundation of mindfulness doesn't give carte blanche to say that anything is okay and run with it. It just gives you a huge crowbar which says that whatever it is, all that really is needed is to know it. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness gives us more tools on how to work with it, integrate it, balance it, and bring it into a state of of calm. So that then our minds are actually serving us. So it isn't that often when we're filled with rage where we can just know it and not at all be affected or identified or really concerned with it. Not that often. I happened to me once, and it was noteworthy, because I was filled with abject rage. (laughs) And I was so furious. I remember I was going on a retreat, and I was absolutely fit to be tied. And my dear friend, Pekka, said to me, you know, what do you need? And I said, just tell everybody I don't want to see them, and I don't want to know what happens, and I don't care if the monastery burns down to the ground. I don't want to know. Just leave me alone. She said, I can do that. I can honor that. You know, you've got my support. So I went on retreat with this lovely mind state and and walking back and forth on my walking meditation path, just absolutely enraged and knowing it. That's all. I was enraged and knowing it, enraged and knowing it. And it took quite a while for it to cool down because it was quite some inferno that got going. But it did. And I didn't need to cathart and I didn't need to process and I didn't need to look at internal reasons for why it was there. All I needed to do was just stay with the rage and know it and watch it and watch it end. It was a really powerful retreat. It was a very powerful retreat. So I'm really grateful for meditation instructions that gives the capacity to work with stuff because sometimes things come up and wow, you know, that was really strong. That kind of rage, that was really strong. And it didn't last an hour. It lasted a long time. It was really strong. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness then looks at, okay, so we've got all this stuff that arises. How can we work with it in a way to bring it more balance? So one of the things that it talks about is working with things in terms of hindrances. Are they there or are they not there? The hindrances of anger, of greed, of restlessness, of doubt. And what am I missing? Sloth and torpor, falling asleep. Yeah. Okay. So, anybody recognize any on those lists? You know, it's like, yeah, so we circle between, you know, restlessness and doubt and frustration and irritation and boredom and get me out of here and if only I could hang out with my friends and I want to go smoke and let me have something that tastes familiar and... You know, this is what arises in meditation. This is what happens. This is what our minds are like. 
The only thing is, is that on retreat, we're not distracting ourselves from it so constantly, and in positions where we can have so much control, where we're actually invited to look at it. And sometimes it's not so inspiring when we have to look at what's arising. You know, it's not so inspiring. But the lack of inspiration is because we identify with the content rather than the process of what we're doing. You know, what we're doing is a radical transformation of our mind. And, you know, it's not a simple thing. I mean, it's not an easy thing. And it's an absolutely profound thing. Just incredibly profound. So hindrances is one one way of grouping, looking at what's going on to see how, how are things going. Another way of grouping things that are going on is in the aggregates. Body, feeling, perceptions, the kind of stories or associations that we make related to the perceptions and consciousness. It's another grouping. Another grouping is the Four Noble Truths. So when I'm talking about the Four Noble Truths, when speaking about the Four Noble Truths, that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So these things are interwoven, they dovetail together. Another grouping within the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the seven factors of awakening. And that's really what I wanted to focus on tonight, the factors of awakening. And so I can never remember them, so I wrote them down. I'm not good at lists. So the factors of awakening are mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And we can use these lists as a way of saying, is it here or is it not here? Okay? Is mindfulness here? So now, once again, these things, the Buddhist teachings loop in, I don't know, they, uh, they, they loop in and out of each other. The, the classical description of mindfulness is the four foundations of mindfulness. So it loops. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the seven factors of awakening, and the one of the, the first factor is mindfulness, and the classic definition of that is the four foundations of mindfulness. It moves. And so, again, you know, the sense of, all right, are we attending to our body? When the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is present, can we just register that as an object? Can we know it? Are we seeing the stuff that's arising in our mind and just knowing it? You know? It doesn't matter what it is. Can we just know it? Can we know doubt as doubt? Can we know fear as fear? Can we know anxiety as anxiety? Can we know trembling as trembling? Can we know mystery as mystery? Can we know what on earth is she up to as what on earth is she up to? Can we know it just as for what it is? Yeah. And this mindfulness, this quality of mindfulness, is one of the things which is like the kingpin of making a difference between our life, which is moving in a way which is uh, confusing or causing harm or um, causing distress in ourselves and others, and a life that's interested in not living like that. 
living in a way where there's not harm, where there's less confusion, where there's more sense of being tethered to one of the things that one thinks is important. So mindfulness is a really important component. And we can check, is mindfulness present or is it absent? And we can ask ourselves, is it here or is it gone? You know, can I feel my body? Am I attending to this thou? What's present for me right this minute? Is mindfulness present or is it absent? Dhamma Vijaya, or investigation of Dhamma, is really an interesting one because that's the curiosity that's willing to look at things and frame things in a particular way that we get a completely different handle on it. You know, so sometimes a thought can come up. Um, you know, like maybe there's a thought of, uh, of um, you know, I'm not that important, or uh, I don't feel like I have much value, or I, I don't have uh, any experiences of compassion that I can remember. So there's a thought, okay? And then Dhamma Vijaya will get curious about, oh, look at that thought. Isn't that interesting? And so it turns into like a child's mind of something that normally we relate to is this is absolute and solid and concrete and there's no footholds in it. The child will look at it and frame it with this perspective of how is that arising? What condition that thought? Or who is that thought landing in? So it changes the perspective rather than identifies with the particular it frames it in a way that gives us some more purchase on what that thought is and how we relate to it. It's curiosity, getting really curious about what's going on. How is this pain? How is the pain related to my emotions? How is the pain related to the weather? Is the pain related to the food? Is the pain related to the environment? How do I know? Is there a way that I can place my attention so I can actually find out? It's really curious in the way that children are wonderful at being really curious about stuff that normally we just think, oh, it's a thing, you know. This is a, this is a, what is this? This is something that goes over a Kleenex box. Well, for a child, this is like, oh my goodness, this is a, a red carpet or, you know, the, the imagination of how to look at this in a different way is infinite. And so when we bring the investigation of Dhamma into our practice, we stop looking at things for the appearances of what they normally are to us and start looking at them in terms of different ways that they relate and different ways that we can be in relationship to them. And that can change a lot. by being curious. Energy is a big part of practice. So, you know, the Buddha never said, if you pray to me, I will deliver you to Nibbana. He did not say that. You know, this is a path where we have to make our own effort 
We have to actually see things for ourselves and have the insight ourselves. There are people who are happy to give instructions, but I have never said, you know, I am able to transport you to the land of freedom. That's not within my power. But I can say, if you follow instructions that work, you too can understand what letting go of suffering is. So we have to actually apply our interest and attention and do the work. We have to show up. We have to do the walking. We have to do the standing and the sitting. We have to figure out how it works. We have to figure out the muscles of our own mind and exercise them. What's the difference between the quality of mind that is able to bring attention to something and the quality of mind that sustains attention on that thing? Do we know those? Can we exercise them? Are they getting stronger? And I can say, just by observing your physical bodies, that there's less fidgeting and less restlessness and more relaxation, that people, everyone here, is defining those qualities of their mind. How to stay with something, how to sustain staying with something, and letting everything kind of relax. And so some of it is a question of simply just time, getting used to the place and the routine and making the adaptations to the schedule because we're half a mile away from one building to the next building. (laughs) You know, and figuring out how it works in this space. So, you know, it just takes some time to make the adjustments and then to undo all the mistakes with the adjustments and, you know, the way it works. But what's happening is is that there's a settling into the space, into the routine, but there's also a settling into the different qualities of the mind that have the ability to make a decision to pay attention to something and then stay with it. So classically, when we're talking about energy, we're wanting to put energy into mind states that are wholesome, like the Brahma-viharas, like generosity, like keeping and practicing sila, uh, restraint. So these efforts that support wholesome mind states to arise, we want to do things that encourage them to stay and encourage them to develop. That's a particular kind of effort. Another kind of effort is to register that when we get mired in anxiety or we feel depressed or we feel absolutely hopelessly lost or completely ungrounded, that those are not mind states that are helpful. And so we need to do things that help us get balanced and grounded and come out of those mind states. And so in this instruction, it's absolutely clear We're not going into a space of open awareness and saying there's no problem. We're saying that there are things that are helpful, there are things that are not helpful, we want to develop the stuff that's helpful, and we want to not develop the stuff that's not helpful and watch it release, reduce, and come into some kind of balance and normalcy. It's very clear. And there's all kinds of instructions on how to do that, you know. How did you support the stuff that helps us, you know, feel well? How do we develop compassion? Where do we get access to loving kindness? 
How can we feel joy in other people's joy and spread that? You know? So energy is a big topic. And having enough energy or not having enough energy is a, is a theme for people, and particularly coming on retreat the first few days. You know, I heard lots. I'm tired. You know, just really tired. And part of that is just the kind of insanity which has become normal for our lives in terms of how much we try and put into a day. And I'm not saying that I am in a different world than you guys are. I do the same, you know. It might be less, but it's just incredible the kinds of, the amount that I put into a day, you know. And and expect a certain degree of a care and attention with all the details, and I, I don't have it to have care and attention when there's that much to do, you know, so I miss So, energy, and having sufficient energy to focus. And I know with my body system, when my energy drops out, it's like, I don't have much time, and if my energy drops, it's dropped. And it's like, there's zero. I have nothing. I just have to rest. I can't, from that place, I can't usually regenerate it. Well, that's not entirely true. No, I have to rest. Usually I have to rest. I have to just rest. And then when I rest, then I can regenerate it much faster. But I can't, from that place of deficiency, find a way back into energy unless I do something to um, self-regulate. Okay, so we've got mindfulness, we've got investigation of Dhamma, we've got energy. And the next one is rapture. All right? So take note, folks. It's rapture. It's not suffering. It's rapture. And so, you know, one of the things on the first few days of retreat is the long-drawn meditator look, where it looks like, you know, people are just look abject miserable. I mean, I sit here and I look at you guys and I think, oh my God, (laughs) heaven help us all, you know. There's this look of, uh, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's just, oh my God. And, and it can be the case, because we are very good meditators and we know the Four Noble Truths and we understand the way that works, that people get the idea that if we're not abjectly miserable, we're not actually practicing properly. <laughs> because the First Noble Truth is suffering. And so if I'm not suffering, then I'm not actually paying careful enough attention. I've missed something. Cannot possibly be that I'm not suffering. I have to be somewhere, and if I'm not, I'll make it. (laughs) So take note. One of the factors that is essential, this is not optional. This is not not an elective. This is an essential factor for the mind to awaken is rapture. Joy. So, guess what, folks? It means that we need to learn to feel it. We need to learn to cultivate it. We need to learn to suffuse it, to let it immerse through our bodies. We need to let it feel in our physical bodies. We need to let it move through our minds. We need to know what rapture is. We need to know how to access it. And we need to know how to make the most of it. Doesn't sound terribly Buddhist to me. (laughs) 
No, but honestly, you know, we have this kind of weird idea about what meditation is and what the Buddhist path is. And sometimes it's completely skiddlywampus from what the Buddhist teachings are. This is an essential factor of mind that is essential for the mind to ripen and open to see things clearly. Is rapture, joy. Now that's different from pleasure. It doesn't mean that we can go off on all of our fantasies of pleasure. But joy is when the mind is bright and content and rejoicing in that. And certainly when we begin to feel a little bit more concentration, that's something that we can experience. And we can experience it as rapture, you know, bubbles tingling that actually are upwelling and move through the whole system. And that's fabulous. And when that happens, what's necessary is to use that and suffuse that through all of our body. And so the image that is given in the suttas is when you take powdered soap powder. They had powdered soap powder in the days of the Buddha. We don't have soap powder. And you massage it with water, knead it, so that the water suffuses evenly throughout the whole soap powder ball, so that there isn't any place that's uneven. When we have that tingling of rapture coming into our bodies, when we feel joy, when we experience contentment that there's enough, There's enough food, there's enough warmth, there's enough shelter, there's enough companionship, there's enough teachings, and the joy of it being enough. We let that joy suffuse through our whole body so that our body begins to really understand what joy feels like. We make the most of it. We don't think, oh, that's joy. I better just watch it arise so that it can pass away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I go out to the Garden of the Gods virtually every single day. And there's always little kinds of sweet things that happen. You know, most of them are pretty innocuous. But one of the things that I love when I'm out there in the evening time, around the time of the sunsets, is that the birds come and watch the sunset, and they watch the sunset together. And it's just like, you know, they have got the right values. You know? Just taking time out of the day to watch the sunset and to do it together. And I see them, and it just brings such joy. Just so lovely. Or the, this evening at tea time, you know, I went to go get an egg that I had put there yesterday because I thought I was going to need it for breakfast and I didn't. 
So I put the egg in the refrigerator and I didn't eat it, so I put it out on the tea tank. And, and Linda said to me, because there were three, and I looked and there were all of a sudden three, and, and she made a joke about what happens when things are left on their own. And it was just like, how lovely just to have a moment of a joke about eggs getting up to mischief by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> just totally innocent but spontaneous and just beautiful you know just sweet but today going out in the walking path and I was determined to find the labyrinth and so I took the long way to get there and I got down there and Elaine was there and I was like oh there's somebody else in the labyrinth you know crunch crunch on snow crunch crunch on snow crunch crunch on snow so there's this joy, you know. Another friend together on the labyrinth. We're seeing Melina, and she had her eyes glued to the window. And she's looking and looking, and I, what is she looking at? There's something she's, she's, <laughs> look, what is she looking at? She's glued to the window. And then all of a sudden, these dogs come bouncing. <laughs> so just moments of shared reality and a little bit of joy and taking it and, and letting it rejoice and spread and making much of it, feeling it. So, joy is an important quality to cultivate. And the joy in our mind then really supports our ability to settle. You know? So, you know, we have this idea, I want to settle, I want to settle, I want to settle, I want to settle, I want to settle! I'm not settling! And it's like, well, maybe we need to try another approach. <laughs> and so, you know, just what's needed is, is to bring the joy into the equation and, and let, let the whole body feel that. And then when we feel the joy, to let everything relax and rest. And then when we rest, what happens is, is that we can feel calm. So the calm is not a force. It's not we're efforting to get calm. The calm is the result of, of relaxing with joy. And that calm then makes it possible to see things a little bit more clearly. You know, body is calmer. We're not so fidgety. We don't need to move so many times. There's a less needing to do stuff. We don't have to be so busy. And even I notice, bless the bulletin board. Honestly, bless the bulletin board. You know, as if the magic answers are going to suddenly appear out of the bulletin board and all will be revealed. And so the system can calm, and we can notice, yeah, if there's a message or there's something shift, you can pay attention to it. 
The calm that comes from relaxation, supported by joy, allows the mind to focus and concentrate. The concentration allows us to see clearly what is going on. And one of the blessings of a retreat situation like this is is that it's set up so that we can actually drop into concentration. You know, we are not having to scatter our attention with too many things. And so we can drop in and feel that when the mind actually begins to unify. And the breath is something that we can really uh, feel. And it's incredible when we feel a little bit more concentration, what happens to our breath. The breath is like, a, is like snowflakes. Every single one is totally unique. Totally unique. And most of the time, we haven't a clue. We're just breathing. I'm breathing. I'm breathing. I'm just breathing. But when there's a little bit more settledness and concentration, and you can see every single breath has a slight difference to it, it's absolutely unique. The in-breaths are different. The out-breaths are different. The pauses are different. The lengths are different. The textures are different. Everyone is absolutely unique. Or just to begin to feel the body. You know, the body moves from being a lump to then having parts, to then having all kinds of stuff that's moving and shifting and flowing and bubbling and tingling. It's alive. It's an alive body. It's not a lump body. But most of the time we walk around with a lump body. You know, something just slightly more energized than concrete. <laughs> the Buddha talked about concentration in very specific ways. And in talking about concentration, he talked about what happens when the mind unifies. And there's, there's a, the ability to stay with what it is that you're wanting to stay with. And you can still notice the thoughts they're coming, you can still notice them. But sometimes when you can still notice them, you can also notice them before they actually break into the surface. So it's like you can watch them as they're emerging before they have any contact, break into the surface, and then all of a sudden there's like this display of, of texture and color and depth and context. And then you can watch them as they release. And then the concentration gets into a place where their thoughts are not arising. And then that joy comes. And the joy that comes from concentration sometimes is so intense, it's almost uncomfortable. And so we have to learn how to cultivate and tolerate joy. So that we can let it in and let it suffuse and let it immerse and move through our whole body. But joy like that has an agitation energy to it. It's got an edge to it. And so there can be a way in which we let go of that joy and drop into a happiness that is not have that edge in it. And then even the happiness can feel like it's too agitated. 
And so we drop both, and our minds can be in a place of just stillness. It's just equanimous. So there's clarity, absolute clarity, but it's not agitated, it's just still. And that is delicious. But the deliciousness of that, most useful, is to bring it back into the place where we're able to see the changing nature of circumstances. Because that's where we have more capacity to have insight. Calm is yummy. That kind of still is like a club med, you know? It's like such a holiday from the normal chaos and inferno of what we're living with. But it isn't liberative. It doesn't transform anything. It doesn't radically shift our way of being in the world or our way of relating to what's arising. And that is what is the potential of what we're doing here. is getting some understanding that there can be a radical way of dealing with the normal stuff that we deal with. Wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. The seventh factor of awakening is equanimity. And for whatever reason, in my own personality structure, that was not something that was very easy for me to find or discover. Same with patience. I never had any. So it's like, how do you find patience or work with patience when you don't have any? Well, it was the bush, it was the land that taught me both of these things. When I was in Australia, you know, and it was 110 or 115 degrees out, there's no running water, there's no electricity, so there's no fan. You have to learn something, and one of the things you learn is patience. But the land also taught me about equanimity, you know, so that when I drop into the land, you know, and I get a sense of something that is really ancient, you know, it's beyond my mind's capacity to imagine 160 million years old. And that's not even as old as the Earth. The Earth is six billion years old. When I rest in that and I get a sense of, you know, what has been witnessed and seen and showed up for, you know, I get a sense of something that has huge capacity and doesn't shake from things very easily. You know, the earth has borne witness to every single birth and every single death since the beginning of life. Has been present for every mountain range that has come into being and dissolved. Has watched species emerge and go extinct has watched whole civilizations coming into being and die out. There's nothing the earth hasn't witnessed. It's happened. The earth has seen it and been present and 
witnessed everything already. So when I tune into that, that gives me a perspective about equanimity that I don't have in my personality structure. About a steadiness of being that is able to receive what is arising and not flap with it. It doesn't mean that I don't feel it. I do feel it. But I don't spin with it. Mindfulness is the ability to know what's going on in our body, with our feelings, in our minds, and in groupings of Dhamma. Investigation of Dhamma is the curiosity and interest to actually see things, see their connections, and be curious. Energy is the willingness to apply one's attention in a way where the stuff that is supportive increases, the stuff that is not supportive diminishes. Rapture, the joy of recognizing there's enough, of seeing what happens when our minds get still and we drop in, of sharing human journey together. Calm when we relax. When we trust. When we unwind. Concentration when the mind unifies and gets still. Equanimity the ability to watch all of it with absolute clarity and not spin out by anything. These are the factors of mind that are essential in bringing together what is needed so that we can see clearly not be confused. Recognize essence. See objects. Relate skillfully. Not suffer anymore. First day of retreat is over and will not repeat again. People have made good effort to get to where we are now. 
This is an important part of the retreat where things are settling. It's not so uncomfortable. But in that place of being a little bit more comfortable, we have a choice whether we use that for stuff that helps us go deeper or we use that more comfort just to keep things more superficial. It's our choice. What we do now, how we spend our time, the way we bring care and attention to the practice. And my encouragement is to choose wisely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.